The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, Tony Macia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Today's podcast is part of a special series we're doing in which we interview winners of the Charlotte Ledger's 40 Over 40 Awards. The recipients are people ages 40 and up who are making a big difference in the Charlotte area. People who saw a need and took action. You can find out more at ledger40over40.com. The host of today's podcast is Steve Dunn. and his day job, he's a mediator who offers dispute resolution services through the Charlotte office of Miles Mediation and Arbitration. Enjoy. Welcome to the Charlotte Ledger podcast in our ongoing series of conversations of winners of the 40 Over 40 Award. I'm joined today by Beth Hardin. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. Beth, I thought that you were the Vice Chancellor for Business Affairs of UNC Charlotte, but I find I'm well behind the times. It turns out you're on a sabbatical of unknown duration. Yes. I spent nearly 30 years of my life in mostly public higher education doing business affairs type things, so money, people, buildings, parking, food service, safety and security, all that kind of stuff. And it's a very important part of my life, the decision Um, I went to grad school at Harvard Business School. It is atypical for somebody with my educational background to choose public education in general, public higher education. So that's a big part of my life. But um, as I reached kind of toward the 25-year mark in public higher education, I knew I wanted to have a new phase, a next phase of my life. And so um, I describe my life for the last year or so as a sabbatical. Um, I have been at Harvard University as a fellow in the Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative, which is designed to broaden, deepen, and accelerate social impact. And so what what we've done over the last year is really explore the world's most complex problems and how um, one can create social movement and change to affect the world's most significant, wicked, if you will, complex problems. Well, and that dovetails very nicely with the the work that you're doing through a book club or a book group that you started. I definitely want to ask you about that, but is it okay with you if we talk about UNC Charlotte for a minute? Sure, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, Charlotte is what the Charlotte Ledger is all about. Absolutely. We, we think about Charlotte, we talk about Charlotte, and UNC Charlotte is a huge part of that. And you were there hey, for a better. long time. Yep. You, had, you were high up in the organization, and you, you shepherded it through a period of a lot of transition yep. and growth. And from the outside looking in, it seems like UNC Charlotte is really coming into its own sort of on the national stage. And I wonder what that experience was like for you being a part of it. So I worked for UNC Charlotte twice, first beginning in 1995 through 2003. Then I went to the University of Wyoming, where Phil Dubois, the former provost at UNC Charlotte, was president. When Phil came back to UNC Charlotte in 2005, he asked me to come back with him from the University of Wyoming, which I did, although I arrived in 2006, early in the year. So I had the opportunity to work at UNC Charlotte at a time when we were changing both in complexity and scale. Um, The first tenure at UNC Charlotte, I worked for Jim Woodward. 
when Jim Woodward arrived at UNC Charlotte, UNC Charlotte was the largest, um, or Charlotte was the largest city in the U.S. with no medical school, no law school, and notably no doctorate education. And so Jim's strategic focus during the arc of his 16 years was to provide um, doctorate education and to expand, become a research institution. And I had the great opportunity to work on those projects. I spent three years, I was part of all the things that happened then. The big issue there was the University of North Carolina actually was at a time with about 150,000 people and expected to grow to about 225,000. This is the system. And so the system view was how do you grow in a way that makes the most difference to North Carolina? The question was, what is it that Charlotte and this region of the state needed? And it needed doctoral education. And so that was not singular, but a primary focus of Jim's tenure. I spent about three years doing the startup, the strategy, the initial strategy and startup of what was called for years the Charlotte Research Institute. And um, I did that through just building out, here's how we're going to use our resources. We're going to build these buildings. We're going to hire these people. We're going to focus in these three areas. When I came back to UNC Charlotte with Phil Dubois, in, in fact, over my two experiences at UNC Charlotte, the university grew from about 17,000 to about 30,000. So again, complexity and scale. Um, it's actually surprising to some people that the research base at UNC Charlotte, which is still not what it should be in the state, I'm a huge fan of growing the research base in this region of the state. Um, and and so I, I really think this is something the state should invest in. Um, but it, it still is surprising when you look at the academic programs that UNC Charlotte offers you know, the growth in research has been meaningful and important. And doing more is really important to the economic uh, sustainability of this region. Sure. I mean, it seems like the university is growing in all the ways that a university would want to. Enrollment is currently at or near its all-time high. As you mentioned, there's about 30,000 students. There's an increasing number of international students, which is, mm-hmm. I'm sure, related to the doctoral level offerings that now exists there. In addition to the work you've done in your long career in education, you are an active member of the community of the Episcopal Church of the Holy Comforter. And within that community, um, you've been involved with a book group that was started after a study came out that many of us Charlotteans will recall, in which Charlotte was rated 50th out of the 50 largest cities in the United States for social mobility. And I, I wonder what it was like for you to learn about that study and what it was about that that inspired you to start your book group. So through engagement with my church and in the community, I've been involved in shelter work and Loaves and Fishes was started in the kitchen of Holy Comforter. And so I've had the opportunity, if you will, to be aware of hunger in our community because every single time I walked onto that campus, it's not that big a place, or into that building, we were receiving and distributing food to hungry people in the community. 
And I have been involved with Room at the End since its inception. Holy Comforter was one of the initial folks or organizations that participated in that. And, and, and this is an organization that provides is it overnight shelter. Yeah, for- Room in the End between December 1st and March 31st provides overnight shelter through what's now called Roof Above for people who are literally on the streets. And so those activities have always opened the door to me for the fact that there are two Charlottes. And so just by virtue of being hands-on in the community, emergency winter shelter, you know, soup kitchens and things like that, being hands-on the community, understanding that there were significant barriers to socioeconomic mobility and sustainability, that was not news to me. (laughs) That was not news to me, and it wasn't news to anybody at Holy Comforter either. Because it's right in front of us. Well, you've every seen day. you've seen this need. You're well aware of the existence of sort of an unseen and underserved population right here in this city. But something moves you at some point to yeah. to get together in an organized sort of way to study <laughs> to study somewhat organized. Well, it's, ca- <laughs> it's you, pretty organized. You tell me actually. whether it's ca- whether it's, it's more organized than something that doesn't exist, right? Oh, yeah, it was something that didn't exist yeah, before yeah. and now it's a group of people who are on a regular basis committed to pretty rigorous examination. Yeah, it's of- it's not a cheese and chat book group yeah no, well there's all different kinds of book groups but this no, is there one, is one this is there one are. that uh, is defined by like actually reading a book right that's one of the yeah. things about it right uh-huh, that's it yeah pretty geeky yeah um, well yeah. How, how did you get it started okay so holy comforter has a lot of educators okay it's um you know and it runs from preschool to uh university deans associate dean's vice chancellor it's all over the map high school you know, all kinds of stuff. So there's an education bent to the group to begin with. And so the Raj Chetty study comes out. And um, I was also familiar with Robert Putnam's work. So Robert Putnam is bowling a Lynn. Uh, a few years ago in Chronicle of Higher Education, the survey done up the most important books of the prior 20 years. Bowling Alone was distinctive. And this is Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, which is about a um sociological dynamics that result in lack is, is of engagement the, 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 the hook is that we used to have bowling leagues right, right. and people That's would right. get together and the title of the book is bowling alone which explains this phenomenon of, of people being disconnected disconnected uh, so, from that. Yep. so we used um our kids the american dream in crisis which i personally consider robert putnam's opus um I had a real neat experience in the fall with a, got a really sweet note from Robert Putnam. But so we used that book and we said, hey, you know, are there other people who would be interested in talking about how Robert Putnam's framework related to, again, our kids, the American Dream of Crisis, a framework around socioeconomic, what I call sustainability and mobility. Plus, I was at UNC Charlotte, have lots of wonderful friends at UNC Charlotte. And UNC Charlotte's, Ur- then called the Urban Institute, had lots of information about Charlotte. And so we said, hey, you know, we should dig into this. And so we started what was initially a five-week or five-session series and looked at the different elements of Robert Putnam's framework. And we looked at it in terms of um, national data and also in terms of local data. Now, when you say we looked at it, what, you've got 
a group of people. These are people that, yeah. that you knew and your friends knew. And well, you, you... so yeah, so we just invited people, and I thought maybe we'd have a dozen, maybe eighteen, maybe twenty-four. By the end of that series, we had fifty or sixty people. Where and are you meeting at this? At time? Holy Comforter. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a good parking, good location. Sure. Oh yeah, of course. And the price is really good. That's for right. Me. <laughs> so yeah, it's really good. Um, and I will come back to that because we do it in a certain way designed to build relationships. It's, it's about awareness. It's about relationships. It's about creating um, a network of people who have awareness and commitment to change the particular dynamics. So you're there. You set up a, a five, was it five books or five? So um, we have a framework about that we use know, believe, and do. And it's a framework about how those three things intersect. And it, this has evolved over time and become a little bit more um, formalized. But, but you know, we could have a longer conversation about what we know, what we believe, and what we do, and how those three things intersect. And, again, a longer conversation about how that paradigm looks, in, at least in my experience in Charlotte, um, and dealing with social movements. But we sent the invitation out to a broad group of people. We actually did another session during the course of the winter on the same book, a little bit longer session, bringing in people who are very familiar with both national and the, and the regional data. So people have come and spoken many times as the author of the book. Um, so yesterday, today, and tomorrow, which is a book about desegregation and resegregation in schools. Um, the, the people who spoke to us were the authors and editors of the book. Um, so it's, you know, we've had a range of, of different things. But we, what we want is we, we have meals. So many of our early participants were educators, and we wanted to honor our educators by a healthy meal. I am lucky enough to have a brother-in-law who's an organic farmer um, and to be fairly connected to the Matthews Farmer's Market. So we have really good food. My husband also cooks really well. And so, so we, you know, 24 people, you know, we – we that grew to be you know 50 or 60 people pretty rapidly so we're but we want everybody to have a meal and especially one to honor educators with a quality meal so some people will talk about in fact you may have seen a letter to this effect from the former president of the West Charlotte High School Alumni Association talking about our food and we do care about that and we want everything to be free so we want to remove the barriers to participation. We also provided childcare. So people could come, bring their kids, have a healthy meal. We structure it so that you can sit, the, the little phrase is, you can sit with someone you know, but you have to sit with someone you don't know. We have um, a set of information that we're really digging into. Um, and then we have a process of connecting people so that by the time you walk out, you will have met three or four people know their names and know something meaningful about them. So it is, it is about creating knowledge and about awareness of what's going on in the community, trying to help people find their place in the change. I think there's much more to do in that space, actually. But trying to, you know, is it, is at, what, at what scale is that change? In what type of role? Uh, does one an individual play in that change and then to network those people so in lightly lightly if you will again perhaps more work to do there as well 
at this point in time, we have 263 people who um, never show up at one time. Thank you very much. There's, there's um, 263 people who have come. Is that basically the... Yeah. the and yeah. how often do you meet? We, because of my commitments, because I dig into this, I, while I don't necessarily become the expert, I have, and there's a group of people who've been supported. All this is not a highly structured, I would call it lightly structured group. It, it's been mostly in the summer. So the programs that we do mostly in the summer, I think people are honestly more open in the summer. Um, they're not as pressured by sometimes work obligations, but certainly school-related obligations for people who have kids or who work in the school environment or whatever. So I've found the summer to be a time when people are more open to new or challenging ideas. And we have definitely had some challenging ones. Well, so the uh, I want to dig into those a little bit, but the the way that it works is that you you have a time to come together. It sounds mm-hmm. like over the summer is maybe the most active time, the time that yeah. works best. Yeah. We've for done folks. things throughout the year, but, but it's there's not a rigorous or rigid schedule to it. But when you have an event, the the idea is that there's a book that yep. you're focusing your attention on. It's, I imagine ideally folks would have read the book in a, we perf- do encourage that, in a perfect yeah. world, right? <laughs> so do. everybody comes, they've read the book. There is a speaker who, if it may be the author of that book or yeah. maybe somebody else who's knowledgeable about the subject. Do you, do you have an open discussion? It seems like 50, 60, 70 people could be, that could be challenging. Yeah. So um, it depends on the speaker. A lot of times, Um, A lot of times the speaker is the primary conveyor of information and we'll have conversations before and after, but a lot of times it is, it is gaining wisdom from, from a speaker. Some speakers like to do turn and talk. So talk to your table about this. We always have some table talk, or again, it's, it's very intentional about ensuring that there is some table talk. But, um, and ways of, of getting people to meet each other. But many times, I mean, it's, it's, it's um, honestly such a, a great experience to have the, ex, you know, the person who wrote the research study or the person who wrote the book that you want to absorb as much as you can from that. And in the course of three hours, you can absorb information. You can discuss information. You can have even, you know, some level of heated dialogue around information you can work through a resolution and have everybody buy-in. Having short meetings to address complex problems, in my experience, is not super productive. And so one of the things that's helped us address more challenging problems is by meeting over a period of time and meeting, you know, technically our gatherings are about two hours. It's very collaborative group. You know, we all clean up together. Um, we've gotten to the point because of the group size that we um, will uh, bring in food often from outside uh, just because <laughs> my, my your husband doesn't want to cook yeah, for no, all the people. Not, that No, he does not. Well, you know, <laughs> so it seems not. like this idea of uh, breaking bread together and yeah, cleaning important. up together is all part and parcel of the project of understanding that oh, it is. person to person working together on something is a, a wonderful way to build connections. There's also something about the ritualistic aspect of going to a place on at a designated time to do a certain thing. And I, I make use of that in my own work as a mediator and I'm constantly reminding people like, like we're here on this day to do this thing and it helps you get it done. It It does. It does. It absolutely does. Holy comforters on a bus route. 
uh, by bus stop on the on the um, on the property. Um, it's it's pretty accessible. It's in what used to be a fairly diverse part of Charlotte. It's a gentrified. Um, so so the geography of it certainly helps. And I absolutely agree with you that coming to a place um, and and space matters um, and forming relationships in a place, those things do matter. You've worked in Charlotte for a long time. You're now on a kind of a, what you describe as a sabbatical. Your options are open to you. You can choose to fill your time with whatever your priorities are. You choose to be in Charlotte now. You've looked at Charlotte with a critical eye. You've studied it. And there's a long conversation to be had about 1850 until today and the inflection point that we face collectively. But you choose to be here now. And I wonder um, personally what living in Charlotte means to you and what you've observed about it in the time that you've been here. So I've lived in Charlotte four times. I was born in Charlotte, but I grew up in East Point, Georgia, which is on the south side of Atlanta. My parents moved back to Charlotte when I was in high school. I stayed in, in East Point in the area and graduated from high school, went to the University of Georgia. But my parents moved back to Charlotte for, I guess, the second time they had lived here. And when I graduated, I looked at a range of options. So I came back to Charlotte, a much simpler Charlotte, 40 years ago. I left again. Went to Boston a couple of times, Atlanta. I don't even remember all the different places, all kinds of places. I've gone for a while, came back. This is the fourth time I've lived in Charlotte. And Provost Joan Lorden talked about being at, at UNC Charlotte for a long time. It's because, you know, it was a different place each time. And so Charlotte has become a different place over the course of the last 40 years in particular. And when you contrast it to being born here, it's all even more change. I grew up, again, on the south side of Atlanta, and really chose to come to Charlotte when I did after I graduated from college because I thought that the opportunity to create a healthy ecosystem of an urban area existed in Charlotte at that point in time. There was still the opportunity to do that. And because of where the public schools were, which was the history of public schools in Charlotte's really important and interesting and deeply embedded in Charlotte's history. And we're not there now. Um, The difference between pre-2000 and current in terms of our understanding of the importance and the value of of CMS is we need that, you know, hmm, okay, that'd be really high on my list of needed changes. Um, Really important. And so I have continued to come back because I thought it was possible in Charlotte to create a city that worked for everybody. You are a recipient of the prestigious Charlotte Ledger 40 Over 40 Award. That's an award that recognizes the accomplishments of individuals who have some life experiences. You are in a place now where you've left a long career in education. um, And I wonder, what do you think about aging and the opportunity that it affords and the wisdom that comes along with it? I love it. 
my husband and I both were caregivers for our mothers as they died. My mother died of COVID in 2020 in early August, although she had dementia. And I was her caregiver for the last eight years prior to her death. We, my husband played the same role for his mother. And, um, and those women were of a generation. Both of our mothers are college graduates. My mother was a CPA um, and a leader in national accounting organizations. And we see, we see the impact that that early generation of women had um, and the doors that were opened by that generation. And so I, I would call my generation a bit of an in-between generation. We're really not that leading edge of women's broader engagement Um, So we have the benefit of the work done before us. And then we can continue to open doors not only for women, but for, again, in my worldview, um, to create a sustainable life for a much broader group of people. So I very much believe that you bring everything in your life experience to where you are. And you know, I don't exactly know what I'm going to do. That's another question. But I'm really at a point in my life where I am listening. Um, I spoke at Harvard Memorial Church in December and five minutes on a topic that I'd spent an hour and a half on in August. And it's a call, a well, and a tribe. And and so my comments were oriented to what are the three things that, that you need when you depart from that experience. It's all about being in transition, a call, a well, and a tribe. A call is a deep and well-considered and energizing sense of purpose. The well is what what is your source of sustaining strength and wisdom? Because to do the most challenging, most important things that, that um, Charlotte confronts, or North Carolina, or the U.S. or the world, you have to have a well. You have to have a well. My well is expressed through the church. That is my deepest well. Family is in that well as well. I have, et cetera. But, um, and then a tribe. So in the best sense of the nine tribes, Native American tribes in North Carolina, in terms of the, the wisdom and the support and the culture and the history, um, you have to have a tribe to accomplish those things. Now, I would also suggest that that tribe has to be intergenerational. And I am a huge, and one of the more distinctive elements of the book group, actually, is that it's intergenerational. So we have people who are 22 and people who are probably 75, 77. Well, you're doing what you can to put the tribe together, and I think that's a great place to leave it. I appreciate it so much you're taking the time to be with me on the Charlotte Ledger podcast. It's a pleasure meeting with you, Beth. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. That's it for today. The Charlotte Ledger podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. And you can find out more about our 40 Over 40 awards at Ledger. 40over40.com Queen City Podcast Network.com. Network.com.